This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, December 5th, 2018. I'm Caleb Brown. How has banking changed since the financial crisis? Is the system more secure even as new risks have emerged? Tobias Adrian is the financial counselor and director of the Monetary and Capital Markets Department at the International Monetary Fund. We spoke during the Cato Institute's Monetary Conference last month. For the help of our listeners, what does the IMF do exactly? The IMF has a very broad membership with 189 members. Uh, The US is actually the member with the largest quota in the fund. A quota is sort of the capital of the IMF. Uh, The IMF has lending capacity that is around a trillion dollars. So one of the things that the IMF is doing is to lend to countries when they're in distress, when they can no longer get funding anywhere else in the world, they turn to the IMF. The IMF comes in with a program. The program means that we lend, but it's conditional on turning around the economy, conditional on changing economic policy. So this is one of three things that the fund is doing. The other two things are surveillance So we look at all our member countries in terms of economic policy and in terms of financial stability at regular intervals. So these broad economic assessments are done either every year or every every two years, depending on the size of the economy. And then my department, which is the Monetary and Capital Markets Department, does financial sector assessment programs. So these are very deep assessments of the financial stability policies in the membership. The US one was last done in 2015, and the next one is going to be started next year. The third thing that the fund is doing is technical assistance. This is particularly for emerging markets in low-income countries. My department runs 1,000 technical assistance missions on issues such as financial regulation, monetary policy, monetary operations, and bank restructuring. When a country seeks out IMF assistance uh, with either uh, funding for for loans or for uh, technical assistance in developing institutions that will manage money or uh, finance within the economy. How do you evaluate, how does the IMF evaluate the relative success of those offers? Well, there's ongoing monitoring. So evaluation is done on ongoing basis. Uh, For example, we have started a a program this year with Argentina, which is a fairly large program. Initially, it was $50 billion. Now the size was increased a little bit above that. And every three months, we're evaluating progress and further disbursements are conditional on our assessment. All right. So well, like when the IMF points to a success story with respect to a country that was in trouble, needed help, got the assistance, and then escaped it and has not needed assistance since then, what, where do you point? So one country uh, that I've looked at closely recently is Russia. So Russia was in crisis in 98. It defaulted on some of its sovereign bonds and had an IMF program. Subsequently, no, what, year, what year was this? So that was in 98. So that's 20 okay. years ago. Subsequently, we provided technical assistance. And one of the aspects of the program was to do inflation targeting at the central bank. It actually took the central bank something like more than a decade, nearly a decade and a half before really having inflation targeting in place. So this kind of work with the countries can last over decades until they get to an institutional arrangement, for example, 
independence of central banks, setting up inflation targeting that really works for the country. And now Russia is a big success story. It's one uh, major emerging market where inflation targeting works very well. Christine Lagarde, uh, managing director at the IMF, says the economy is strong, but there's more to be done. So where do we stand 10 years after the financial crisis? And in, in general, what lessons ought we to take from uh, the financial crisis? Well, the number one lesson from the financial crisis is that financial stability is macrocritical, that we really have to make financial stability into a first order goal for macro policies. Uh, the IMF has always had a financial stability mandate. So from the IMF's point of view, this is something very natural. But in many, many member countries, a, a sort of macro prudential approach to macroeconomic policy is something fairly new. And so what the IMF has pushed a lot over the past 10 years is that countries around the world should have a macroprudential framework, meaning they should look at the financial sector from a macro stability point of view. So 10 years after the crisis, are our financial institutions uh, around the world more or less fragile than they were in 2008? The banking system is regulated much better than it was 10 years ago. There's much more capital, more liquidity in the banks, and we have a resolution system in all of the countries that house systemically important financial institutions. So the banking system is certainly safer. But new risks have emerged in the meantime. For example, the share of credit intermediation in the non-bank financial sector has increased since the crisis, and we don't have as many macroprudential tools in that sector. Secondly, there are new risks, such as cyber risks, right? If you ask, if you, if you look at uh, polls of risk managers of major financial institutions, the number one risk that they talk about is cyber risk. And those are very different uh, risks than the traditional market risks, credit risks, etc. So new tools are needed there. A third example is, uh, is the change in market making. The dealers have become relatively less important relative to high-frequency trading firms. So a lot of the volume today on a day-to-day, minute-by-minute, second-by-second, nanosecond-by-nanosecond basis is done not by the major dealers that we all know, but by high-frequency trading firms that are often not regulated. After looking at uh, regulatory reform efforts in the United States in 2010, uh, it seemed especially strange to me that sovereign debt received this special deal uh, with respect to banks uh, holding them around the world. And it, it never really made sense to me. Is there a way to get back to a world in which everybody just has to do their due diligence in terms of the capital that they hold and not simply trust these standards that give you special credit when you're holding sometimes very bad, low quality sovereign debt that you know, just by virtue of the fact that it's a government doesn't make it uh, quality instruments? Uh, it's a very valid point. Uh, this is a debate uh, that hasn't really concluded in the Basel Committee. It's a debate that has been going on for years. So the baseline Basel three recommendations, the minimum standards that have been agreed upon, actually do have risk weights for sovereign exposures, but there's an exemption clause. 
and member countries all use the exemption. And so because the major advanced economies do that, emerging markets and low-income countries also do that. So in general, countries don't impose risk weights on sovereign exposures. Now, of course, there is the leverage ratio, which is a backstop because the leverage ratio does include all assets, including sovereigns, but it's a very weak uh, kind of capital requirement. But to the, to the extent that, you know, banks, uh, one, it, it's hard for me to justify why banks should receive some sort of credit for holding debt that is of relatively low quality. And it seems to have this also perverse effect for the countries that are issuing that debt to continue doing it and without reforming their institutions. So the arguments on both sides. So one side of the argument is purely about financial stability. And the argument is that, well, these are potentially risky securities, so you should hold capital against them. As a matter of fact, we help many countries in programs. Uh, the fund at the moment has nearly 40 countries in programs. I think it's 37 or 38 or so. And very oftentimes we see that the banking system is in distress and it's that much more in distress when the sovereign is also in distress. So there is a sovereign bank nexus that makes crisis that much worse. This is one side of the argument. And so they are basically, I would argue, well, you know, if there's a sovereign distress, having a capitalized banking system is that much more important. But then, of course, there's the other side of the argument, which is saying that, well, the marginal cost of funding for the sovereign is increasing if you impose capital requirements. And in particular, when you have bad temporary shocks. You don't go all the way to, to sovereign crisis, but you just have like a bad shock because you have a recession or, or global risk appetite is, is adversely impacted. You know, then imposing capital requirements increases the cost of funding for the government that much more and hence makes counter-cyclical fiscal policy more expensive. So that is always the counter-argument. And as I say, at the Basel Committee, this is very hotly debated and no consensus have, has been reached so far. Tobias Adrian is director of the Monetary and Capital Markets Department of the International Monetary Fund. We spoke at the Cato Institute's Monetary Conference last month. You can subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast at iTunes, Google Podcasts, and when you think about it, ask Alexa to play the Cato Daily Podcast. And you can follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. 